Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to an American Citizens Transfer Deadline Day episode. Um, my name is Gray. I'm with Josh, as usual, and we are back to the... Well, not habit, I suppose, but we are back to having a guest with us today is Colin Savage from the King of the Kipax fanzine. Um, very well versed in uh, financial club matters, things like that. So we're going to talk to him about that today. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. And it's a pleasure. Yeah. Pleased to have really you Really great to be here. Um, I believe I've got a bit of an interest, actually, because my son's actually an American citizen with a Y. He lives over in Pennsylvania. Oh, perfect. So, um Perfect. Yeah. So, and I believe that we have indirectly referenced you on the uh, the previous the Mike Devlin. Yeah, episode. I was I, I was quite amused listening to uh, Mike Devlin, and uh, I got an, an anonymous mention a couple of times. So that was quite um, that was quite funny. Um, well, it wasn't funny because what one of the mentions was I was the guy whose father died just before we um, won the title in two thousand and twelve, um, and. It kind of wasn't funny at the time, of course, but I, I guess uh, um, we. Um, it was a couple of days. We played Manchester United on the Monday night, beat them 1-0 to go top. Um, my son and I had been at the game, and on the way back, uh, my father had been watching it on my um, TV account on the computer, and he rang on the way. As we were on the way home, he, he rang. He was really excited. And uh, two days later, he died of a heart attack, and I'm sure that game killed him because it damn near killed me. So, um, yeah, <laughs> so I had to, ended up missing the Newcastle game, but uh, fortunately it, uh, we got to the QPR game, so that was a nice way to uh, kind of remember him, really. And you were also, the other indirect mention was the... Uh... Yeah, the other one was, um, yeah, so uh, Cyril Mintz, who was the, the, the little guy in the cap at the end of that wonderful video piece, which I know you talked about. Yeah, the... Uh... Uh, I, I used to be, what was it? Um, I used to be six foot two with curly hair. Yeah. yeah. And um, my mum's my, uh, my in a care home. And I went to, went to see her one night. And my brother was there. And, and he said, there's Cyril, the guy who was on the video. So uh, I went over to have a chat to him and said, would you mind doing an interview for King of the Kipax with me? Which he was delighted to do. He was a really fantastic guy. Uh, he'd been watching... Um, city since 1937 so that was the, the, the that was the season we won the title for the first time and that uh, was the guy at the end of the video that 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 they said can you hang with your team for 70 plus years yeah, yeah like okay yeah. all right yep so so you started watching in 1937 and of course um if you know anything about city's history you, you may not but uh, we won the title in 1937, and the following season we got relegated. So only City could do that. No, one, I don't think anyone's ever done that before or since. And uh, his final season was 2000, when he was actually watching the games live was 2014. So in 75 years, um, he saw us win. His first season was the first title-winning season, and his last season was the last title-winning season. But 
in between, he saw all sorts of rubbish. But he ended up, it started on a good note and it ended on a great note. Like, I I mean, well, I mean, (laughs) as much as a heart attack can be a great note, you know, but, but I think we, we, we're all having a bit of gallows humor here. Uh, (laughs) That's, that's just a fascinating tale, man. I mean, there's, there are so many similarities and I, and I argue this with people about college football in the way that people are passionate about it, like the NFL, while it's gaining popularity over there across the pond, it's somewhat surprising to me that the people are gravitating toward that because college football in truth is far closer to what you get with, with what we call it soccer. And, uh, uh, it, 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 you know, these schools have been around for a hundred plus years. The rivalries are a hundred plus years old. You know, there's all time series records and things like that. If you're born on a certain side of the state, you're a this. If you're born on another, you're a that. You know, it's just, it's so, so similar. And if you look at National Signing Day, which we're going to get to here in a second, like Gray, tell me that National Signing Day and Transfer Deadline Day are not, like, two sides of the same coin. Similar, yeah. Although I, I, can't, I can't profess to paying a ton of attention to National Signing Day, but I, I can see the similarity, yeah. So is it, is it like a window... Or is it all on one day in the in college football? Or? It's, it's one day that they're technically allowed to sign. Now they're pushing right. to have a window. Uh, you can you can there are two there are two days where you can sign. There's an early signing period for early enrollees around in between December and January, right in that middle portion. And and so like JUCOs or guys who've graduated early can go ahead and enroll if that's what they want to do to get started on the. College college process. But if you're like most people who start college in the fall, then the the announcement date for you for you is going to be the first Wednesday of of uh, every February. And on that date is when you sign a national letter of intent, which is essentially uh, a contract binding you to attend that university, but they're not binded. They're only bound to give you financial aid to, to provide you with a scholarship for one year. So beyond that, there are no guarantees. But yeah, it's a one day period followed by a, a contractual signing. So it's it's pretty insane. I wouldn't recommend watching it, but the similar similarities are very much there. Oh, it's kind of a national sport. I mean, it's a national institution here because, of course, there's two windows, one in the summer, which starts 1st of July through um, end of August. So that's um, two months. But all the business seems to get done in the last day. You know, that the whole drama mm-hmm. seems to happen on the last day when you've got two months to sign all these deals. Now, fortunately, City, in terms of incoming transfers, have done all their business. But there's been quite a few outgoing today. And that's what, the, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. But because the, the greatest deadline day was 2008. Because that was the day the club was taken over by uh, Abu Dhabi, by Sheikh Mansour. And, and we had one day to do any business. We'd actually done some business. Are, are, we, uh, are we? Yeah, I guess we do have to put Mansour ahead of Pep Guardiola, don't we? Because you, 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 <laughs> if you put Guardiola before Mansour, then that's, I think, the literal definition of putting the cart before the horse. 
Well, well a, lot, a lot of fans are talking about this at, at the game, and it feels like that, that was kind of 2008. September the 1st, 2008 was kind of the start, but, but when Guardiola came, July the 1st, 2016, was really the kind of... The, the, the rest from 2008 to, to then was a bit of a... Um, what do you call it? A, a kind of um, false period. Um, I forget. I can't think of the term at the moment. But um, um, the calm before the storm, really. And when Guardiola, well, how about a soft the thing launch. that brought it all together? Would you settle for a soft launch? Like they yeah. always knew that they wanted Guardiola after getting trounced at at Barca. That that immediately then is when City completely reinvented everything. And and uh, they they had to lay the groundwork to get him. So I feel, yeah, I feel like that covers it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two thousand and eight was the foundations, and now kind of the house is there, and we're, we're taking occupation, if you like. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So let's let's get into before we start getting into the financial matters that that we have you here to talk about. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about City's transfers on transfer deadline day. So, um, five outgoings in one day, all on loan. Um, and, you know, what, what we have in particular in uh, Samir Nazri and Joe Hart are two of the players that were so instrumental in the trophies that Manchester City have won since the takeover. Um, Hart in particular came, was before the takeover, was involved in the FA Cup win as well as both titles and the League Cup wins. Nasri came a year after the FA Cup win, but was vital in that first um, Premier League victory and was also vital in the second one as well. So um, I think today's a bit bittersweet um, for all of us, and I'll let you guys speak to that as well. But um, for two guys who have been so vital to our success, moving out the door and, you know, kind of shuffled out and in kind of a very abrupt fashion because, you know, we knew this had been coming, but it, it's still a bit difficult in a certain way, but ultimately the right decision to see the axe fall like that. And I'll let either of you speak to that. I, I, all I'm going to do, I'm going to let Colin fully answer this one. I just want to add one small question in there about one guy in particular. Um, I, I think that you know, Colin, you're the perfect guy to speak on, on Joe Hart. Like I'm not Gray's not, it's just, you, you know, I, that that's all you and, and we've covered it, but I'm curious about Denayer because part of my sensibilities say that, that, that Manchester city have royally screwed the pooch with this kid. And, and I'm, I'm not looking at this thing as a fan, mind you. I'm looking at this thing as a guy who's been inside locker rooms and seen players handled. In college, they have a thing called redshirting. Um, and, and sometimes coaches like to get players to take a redshirt uh, so that way they can have another guy take his spot on the roster for one year. Um, so, so you kind of come into these situations where guys are ousted or have to sit out. It's, it's very weird. What? What I'm curious about with Denayer here is this is a guy who signed a five-year deal, and he thought he was going to compete right away, and the next thing he knows, he's on loan to Galatasaray again. Then Pep Guardiola comes back. Everybody and their mom thinks 
well, all right, man, we can't wait till Denayer get back. Like, especially after the just the flopping of, of Otamendi, etc. And um, then Denayer comes back and he's basically nobody. Like, he's been replaced by Tosin, which I have no problem with, by the way. Um, but what? I guess the underlying question is this. What the hell happened with the Nair? Is there something that we don't know? I, I, I don't think there is. I was trying to work this out myself before you called me. And um, one of the things I was trying to work out was, does he classify as homegrown, uh, particularly under the uh, UEFA Champions League squad rules? And we actually signed him about a week after his 18th birthday. And you have to do three years to become homegrown before you're 21. So I'm not sure, unless we've got his birthday's kind of summer, so it's after the after the end of the the the, the old season before the start of the next one. So I'm not sure how that works out. So uh, there's a bit of a question mark over whether he's ever going to be homegrown or not. But the the thing that struck me about Denea was that. We've got, in terms of centre-backs, we've got this rather surprised centre-back of uh, Alexander Kolarov, who I think that that one took everyone by surprise because everyone thought he was going to be the first one out the door. We've got Vincent Kompany with a with a kind of um, somewhat dubious injury record. So the number of times he was, you know, he's been out in the last couple of seasons, there's no guarantee he's going to be... Um, he'll, he'll last a full season. We'd love him to. And, and he's the wrong side of 30 now, so... Uh, Ottomendi is a bit of an unknown quantity. We've only had him a season and he's not played under Guardiola. And, and, and we've seen improvements in his game and he is quite good on the ball. Uh, but that kind of leaves us just with John Stones as a real guy we can rely on. So so, so my thinking about Denea is he's gone to Sunderland on loan. Uh, he will be getting Premier League experience and, and he's going to get a lot of experience at Sunderland. That's for sure. Because they're going to have a struggle this season. And... I think it's just a holding operation to see what happens over the next season. I think, well, a number of things could happen. One is a uh, company can't go on or can't be relied on. We 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 um, we don't think, or Pep doesn't think Ottomend is going to make the grade. Um, Kolarov is a stand-in. You know, we, we do something with him. So I, I think for him this season, if he performs this season, I think there's a chance for him next season. Is but there any chance you may have to go as a foreign? Yeah, buy you him. Have to be one back. of our foreign players. Is there any chance, like mid-season, like you were saying right there, if 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 that crap happens to to all those players, is there any chance that if Denayer's doing well, and and you know Vinny goes down with another major injury or something, uh, Kolarov regresses, whatever, economically. Is there any chance that they end his loan early? Like, let's say he he's killing it, and City are like, "Damn it, what did we do? Like, we need the help again." Like, would they end that loan earlier? Or are they definitely going to leave him there? It depends on the terms of the loan, because some loan deals have a, a a kind of callback call clause built in, and some it's a loan for the whole season regardless. So, um, I've not heard anything to suggest we've got a callback clause in that. But it's all, I don't think we'll know anything for the next few days because it's all been done in a rush. So I suspect the news will come out. But 
I, I, I think for the moment, yeah, I say. So I suspect, as I say, I suspect it's a, a waiting game as far as Dineo is concerned to see what happens with company and uh, Otamendi. It, it's unusual to have a, a callback clause unless you, you really stretch. But then why would you send someone out on loan anyway uh, if you were really stretched? So I, I, I guess if something, if the worst happened, we had kind of two centre backs injured. Um, then, then toss in, and there's a um, Cameron Humphreys, uh, another up-and-coming young centre-back. I guess we could manage, but uh, yeah, it will be an interesting one with Denea because I think we all want to see him. So, um, he, you know, he, he's he's a Belgian international. He's uh, played for Celtic. He's played for Galatasaray. He's won. He's one thing. So, you know, he's he's not a, clearly not a terrible player. So, I, I think next season is the big key one for him i i'm not entirely and i agree with you i'm not entirely thrilled with how they have handled him um over the last two years because it feels like they just sort of keep deferring that decision and if he if he plays well if he performs well at sunderland he will have you know champions league experience he'll have premier league experience they can't possibly ask him to do anything else so i think next summer there's a decision that's going to be have to be taken you're either either this is it we got to move you on you're not fit for us or you're in the team because I don't they can't obviously they can't keep doing this. Do you think they sent him to Sunderland because they're going to be so bad there's no chance Jason Denayer wants to stay there like he reportedly was considering with I'm, Galatasaray. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, <laughs> I, 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 I thought, say that tongue in cheek. <laughs> I, I say that tongue in cheek, but. Uh, you know, hey man, uh, I I think that the him being in the Premier League is is really like at that point there's really nothing else you can ask of him. I, I think it's the best case scenario that doesn't involve keeping him. Yeah, so. yeah, which I don't understand why they don't want him there. Well, I think they the, he wants first team time, and there's just going to be agitation unless they give it to him. Okay, but I'm that's not. that's sort of just an educated guess on my part. Yeah. So. Um, my, my next question with, with, with all this, unless we, did we want to talk, we have talked so much about Joe Hart, but now that it's finalized, I don't know if we want to do any more. Um, but you know, I I just, I would like to get Colin's quick thoughts on, um, you know, guys like Nasri and Hart in particular, who have been so, go ahead. On, uh, Hart, that's it. Go ahead. Keep going. That's it. I do have one on Hart that I want to add in when you do the Nasri thing. Okay, well, I'll I'll let you pile on, but um, I just I just want speaking as someone who, who has a lifetime of this under their belt, what it's like to see players like this who have been so vital to such a period of success after such a barren period, um, being moved on. I like I the I use the word bittersweet, and I think that's apt. But I want your I would be interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, Joe Hart's been around for such a long time. It, it, it's part of the part of the furniture. Um, so, so it is it is a bit bittersweet in many ways, and it'll be kind of strange not seeing him there. But um, on, on the other side of the coin, you know, when you had Ian Cheeseman on, he mentioned there were off-field issues uh, around Joe Hart, and I've heard um, uh, a couple of stories suggesting the same. Um and we do tend to look at players with a jaundiced eye when the players like um, Joe Hart, Micah Richards, those sort of players who have been with us. Well, Joe Hart didn't come through the academy, but he's been with us since he's been a, a relative youngster. Uh, we do tend to look at them with a jaundiced eye. 
and, and particularly for the larger than life characters and and you know th- there's that connection with the fans and the crowd and uh, you know if you see the games and there's a quiet period and, and the ball's down the other end the crowd will be singing to Joe Hart he'll be doing stuff and you know, technically, is he a great goalkeeper? Uh, and this is what I've been saying for a while. He has a number of significant weaknesses which haven't improved with age. And, and now he should be coming into his prime. But, of course, he's, in, he's now uh, sharing city with uh, Buffon. So if he can't learn anything in Turin, then uh, he, he never will. But, yeah, it, it is a strange one. But um, I, I think there are issues behind the scenes. I think maybe he's not technically so... So, so in terms of Joe Hart, I think I think we've said everything there is to say. Yeah, it's a shame. I have but- one question about that, though. I, I want to know one thing. There's one thing that hasn't been a- answered to me, and it's probably got nothing to do with Hart himself, maybe. But here's what I want to know. Torino? <laughs> Joe Hart is such a great, great keeper. Torino? Well, it... it- it's difficult to know what's really happened here. Whether uh, there's, you know, there's a number of theories floating around about which didn't really didn't seem to have much time to to arrange something. So you know what what, what has happened has because um, it's quite clear City were looking for a new were starting to look for a new keeper earlier this year. So uh, I kind of ask myself what's happened here. Has has Pep said I don't want Joe Hart, but he's been persuaded to kind of give him a try and found out it hasn't worked. Um, you know, has something else happened? Has Joe Hart just not kind of read the tea leaves correctly? It, it's so difficult to say, but um, it, it, I, I guess it's whoever wants a, a, key, a keeper at short notice. I mean, there's kind of people saying that the club haven't treated him very well. They haven't given him a lot of notice, but he, he, he knew this was coming. He must have known this was coming. Whether he thought he was untouchable, uh, whether he thought his reputation, his standing with the fans would um, save him or, or what, we just don't know at the moment. I'm sure the story will come out in time. You know Whether Pep did intend to give him a try and that didn't work out, I, I, it's just um, difficult to say. I, That's yeah. fair. I was just curious how he ends up at a club like Torino. You know, there are plenty of... It seemed uh, like his alternative at the end was Sunderland, which I'm sure he wasn't exactly keen on a relegation battle. No, true, true. But I was wondering, all right, so why wouldn't Everton want him? Why? Because they're busy spending $30 million on uh, Musa Sissoko. True. We've but been getting was, hipped to it by Tottenham. If, true, but if it was just going to be a loan move, like why wouldn't Everton say, all right, dude, we'll, we'll, we'll do this loan deal? Um you know, I mean, at least with Ronald Koeman, and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, Colin, but at least with Ronald Koeman, you're getting some of that integrated teaching that Guardiola uses. Ronald Koeman is, is like Guardiola, a disciple of but the greatest can, can I, Dutchman yeah, to ever live. They were, they were roommates, weren't they? It's, yeah. Uh, but if, if so, I can... Yeah, if, I, I, it's difficult. It's, I don't know, there's a lot, a lot of questions that kind of come up on this one, and I'm not sure there are, you know, any of us know the answers. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's an off-field thing that affected whether um, uh, an English club came in for him. It's, um, But, you know, it, uh, uh, maybe it's about regular game time or something. I mean, I, I think this kind of com- this kind of leads on to Nasri in some ways, 
because I think Pepper said that Nasri came on for 20 minutes on Sunday and he looked really sharp. But whether Pep said to him, look, you're not going to be the first name on the team sheet. Um, therefore, it's up to you. Or perhaps yeah. even the last name. Are you are you prepared to play a bit part or do you want first team football? Then that's up to him, then, isn't it? And maybe that was the same with Joe Hart. I don't know. If I can just cut in quickly, I have two things. Um, for one, I think that a loan move to like Sunderland would be easier to for him to for Everton than to Everton because I think Everton might have been looking for something more permanent if they were going to do this, but aren't going to pay for something more permanent. Whereas Sunderland are just trying to stay in the league and they'll take this for a year and deal with it. And second, um, you know, I like the thought of Kuman sort of like you know the 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 same sort of philosophy, give him a year. But, you know, I think that, frankly, while there's a lot of sentimental thinking that he's still the Manchester City player technically, but I think he, now once he goes anywhere, I think the bridge is burned. I think he's gone, and I don't think he's coming back. So I don't think it really Wait, matters. Ajax but, needs a keeper, I hear. That's <laughs> so they do. <laughs> I don't think he's coming back. Yeah. yeah. I So, you know, I think that there, you know, there are these thoughts and loan him out to someone who plays a similar style of football and see how he gets on there for a year. But, you know, I think it's over. And I, I think there's some sentimental thinking in that. But I think if we have to be cold, hard and realistic, then we we have to admit that it's it's over one way or another. Um, but I would like to move on to the next question. And this gets more into the financial aspect of it, because I've seen some complaints today, roughly, you know, in this mad market where people are spending Thirty million on Musa Sissoko or what have you. Um, the city had some valuable pieces in Nasri and Bonnie, maybe, and Hart and Mangala in particular. Denaire, I'm not really counting because I think that was strictly a loan move, and they do have him in their plans eventually. But the other four are pretty clearly not in their plans going forward. Have City blown it by settling for loans? And as far as we know, we haven't heard anything about an obligation to buy on any of these. Could they have done better? Could they have gotten a permanent deal? Or is it the wages? Is it the market? What have have they messed this up? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Um, I don't think they have messed it up because there's a number of there's a number of issues. One is the wages, as you said. Now we we've I think we're paying just over half of Joe's wages, for example. Um, we can absorb that. That's not an issue for financially for City uh, for various reasons. So we can absorb that. Um, but of course, then we're a, we're a forced seller because everyone knows these guys are for sale, and it's the last few days of the transfer window, uh, and everyone wants them at knockdown price. This is kind of the the Daniel Levy at Spurs approach to to transfers: leave it till the last day uh, when someone's desperate to sell and, and see what sort of price you can get. So, for me, the good thing about the loan is they're in the shop window. The um, the wages aren't an issue, I don't think. But, doesn't affect us financially. The and at the end of twelve months, uh, people then know know they're going to, these guys are going to be on the market. So it gives them a chance to get in first. And, and the other side of it is in terms of transfers. Um, actually, it may work out slightly better for us because I'm not sure if if you know how transfers are accounted for. But basically, if we pay fifty million pounds for a player on a five year contract. We it's, put a, it's a yearly average, isn't books it? At 10 million a year. Yeah. So it's another, whatever we pay for these guys, well, Joe Hart's nothing, obviously. Uh, Dene is nothing. Uh, so in terms of Bonnie, Mangala, and um, don't think Nazri, um, having been here, what, five years, it, he won't be 
uh, much amortization going through the books. So these guys are almost freebies. So when we do sell them, it's all virtually all pure profit. So actually, by, by not being a forced seller and perhaps being able to um, move these guys in more of a, a seller's market, perhaps we'll increase our um, kind of return on them. Uh, that, that, that's certainly my thinking on it. I had similar thinking, and I think that, you know, we, we like to think that City are out of that trap that they fell into, particularly in the early post-takeover years, where they were just signing, you know, in a certain sense, they were signing whoever would sign up and giving them whatever wages they asked for in order to sign up because they weren't yet a Champions League club and they couldn't guarantee Europe yet. Um, I think we are moving past that, but at the same time, these guys are still on significant wages and... Especially if there's no domestic interest, which is, you know, a question we're going to get into later. The other leagues are not as rich as the Premier League. So you're going to run into issues with clubs like Valencia and clubs like, obviously, Torino and even clubs like Seville, who aren't going to be paying, um, who aren't going to be able to afford to pay all those wages. Even if a Premier League club could, if there's no Premier League interest, you can't make it happen. And I think that's another part of it. Yeah, I mean, Nasri Hart and um, Mangala particularly are going to be big buys. You know, they're not going to be going for three, five million pounds, you assume. So yeah, it's probably better to wait until next summer when clubs uh, have got a little bit more money rather than do it now when perhaps a forced seller. Because with, with, the, with the squad rules now, everyone knows we can only have 17 foreign, maximum of 17 foreign players. So you know, we, if we're trying to sell these guys now in the last few days of the window, um, you know, it, it, it's not a great financial uh, deal really is there any aspect real quick just because i it piques my curiosity at the back end is, are, are there any executives also looking this on say opposing teams going there's no way in hell we're gonna help city with this problem like let's let's saddle them with as many burdens as possible or do they look at the players and think well if we could if they would lower the wages we'd happily take this guy but um I, I, it's a doggy dog market out there, I guess, and you know agents are involved as well. And if you're if you're an agent, do you want to sell a guy for ten million who you think you might be able to get a twenty million pound fee for in twelve months' time? Um, Got to say, it, 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 the last few days of the window are a buyer's are, are kind of a you know it, it's it's a buyer's market for clubs who are desperate to shift players on. Although there has been some crazy, I mean, 30, as you say, 30 million pounds for Musa Sissoko. I think there's a decent player in there, but not 30 million pound um, decent player. But uh, um, so, yeah, he's gone, apparently he's gone to Spurs, Sissoko. So um, if they had to match uh, Everton's offer. So Daniel Levy got caught out at his yeah, own game, I suspect. That, that has happened very recently, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. That. Yeah. He looked like he was going to Everton, but Spurs yeah. and their Champions yeah. League football have swooped in. And so, yeah, the I mean, there's, there's a number of factors. So the, paying the wages is not an issue financially. Um, so uh, it's probably better to, to sit and wait. If these guys have a great season, that demand's going to be there and people are going to find the money. If they don't have a great season, uh, and again, part of it is the wages we pay, so we can't expect... Um, we're not going to expect clubs to pick those up, I guess, in full. So um, to me, it makes a little bit more sense to, to maybe to hang on for 12 months 
and then see how the land lies. Yeah, that's, that makes sense to me. Um, I'm going to shift things around a bit. It's going out of order of what I had done, but we're on the topic, so I don't see any reason why to skip it. Um, so much has been made of financial fair play, and I think you know every time City spend forty million pounds on a player, the reaction from some people is, "Huh, FFP was supposed to stop this." Um, but let, just let's answer that question once and for all. In a world with financial fair play, but also the new TV deal and Premier League revenue and Champions League revenue, depending on how deep they go, when they have a baseline, obviously, that they're going to get just from being in the group stage. But if they go to the quarterfinals, the semifinals again, it just goes up and up. Um, you know, how, how much can City are profitable now, I believe, is yeah, how right. the books work. And so with that in mind and with all the re- revenues in mind that they're getting and the sponsorships as well, how much can they actually afford to spend without running afoul of financial fair play? Because I would imagine even at this point, it is a fair bit. Yeah, it, it's um, it, it really is a fair bit because um, City, as you say, are now profitable. And I kind of obviously uh, it's a guesswork, but I keep my eye on the accounts. So I've got a, a kind of projection about three years ahead. Now, 2015-16 accounts will be coming out in a couple of months, two, three months. And, and I reckon we're going to be looking at something like uh, 60 to 70 million profit, net profit, bottom line, everything taken into account. And I think we're going to be looking at those sort of figures minimum now for the next few years because the new um, domestic TV deal kicks in this this season. So, so that last season didn't include the uh, the new deal that was the last last year of the new deal and we're still going to make about 60 to 70 million uh, 65 million give or take profit i think it's it's at least another 50 million income net this the current financial year 2016-17 and unless the bubble bursts then it's going to be like that for the foreseeable future um and, and some of our commercial deals are actually a little bit on the low side probably um the etihad deal got roundly criticized when it was first announced. But if they're paying £40 million a year for shirt sponsorship, stadium sponsorship, and the naming of the campus, that's cheap uh, by comparison to other deals that have been done, considering we are a top four Champions League club with a huge profile internationally. That's cheap by college football standards. (laughs) Yeah. So um, Didn't Chelsea get in hot water over only the kit deal being so low and they had to renegotiate it, as I recall? Yeah, yeah. So it's not just a case of the bottom. So, as I said before, when you do a transfer, you divide it by the number of years, and that's how it goes through the account. So if you took a very crude example and say our profit was 50 million, that that equates to 250 million pounds worth of transfer deals over five years. Because it doesn't, you're buying and selling players all the time, but it's very difficult to predict because a lot goes into it. Because obviously there's the fees, there's the wages. There's what you get for um, outgoing players, because when we sell a player, we take this amortisation into account. So someone like Mangala, we paid £40 for him two years ago. Um, He'll be down to £24 on the books now. So if we get £25 for him, we've not lost any money on him. If we get £30 we've made a profit. So there's a load of variables to be taken into account, but I I think we could probably expect uh, transfer spending, uh, you know, of the region of, I think this window has been our biggest one ever, actually, in terms of gross gross and net spend, about 165 million, I think, 
Um, but I, I, I think we can probably ex- expect um, £100 million plus gross windows uh, in the future, and even I, on our current. And I know in theory they could have theoretically affo- afforded Pogba if they wanted to. Is, um, you know, yeah. Probably yeah. expensive. Uh, the stories I heard, there was, there was a lot of money to spend. In fact, one, one of the... So one of my sources, and this one was regarded as very reliable. It was an unusual one. It was just a chance one. Um, we, we were definitely interested in Neymar, but whether we were using us for um, using us to get a new contract, or whether there was a genuine chance of getting the getting the uh, transfer done, um, there was plenty of money available this summer, and uh, money's money's not an issue. I, I think anymore. If we're talking about profits, net profits that are going to be close to the hundred million. Um, kind of level every year, then um, it, it, it's not an issue. Right. I mean, the only other the only other factor, of course, is financing the financing the uh, transfers themselves. So um, I, I I think there's been a general move to kind of wean us off um, direct financial support from Abu Dhabi or from Sheikh Mansour. Uh, and the only money you put in in the in the last published accounts was to build the um, new third tier of the South Stand, which is about sixty million pounds, I believe. So that that was the only money he seems to have put in. But uh, so I think from now on, and particularly with the new TV deal kicking in, our transfers are going to be pretty well self-financing. And, and this is a this is kind of one of the the great things when um, United and other fans say, you know, what's what's going to happen when the Sheikh gets bored and walks away, or the oil runs out, and you tell them we're, we're self-funding these days, and they don't believe you. So. Um, but we are, we're self-financing these days. Right. If we have to pay for transfers in two or three installments, we might have to do that, but the cash is there. Right. Even right. without Sheikh Mansour. And I contrast, and yeah, and I contrast that with a couple of summers ago, the summer of fourteen fifteen, where they were limited to the 50 million pound net spend. And that was a summer that um, Alexis Sanchez moved to Arsenal and Angel Di Maria moved to Manchester United. Both of them were generally regarded as, you know, long-term targets, and they just couldn't get in on it because they were hamstrung by the restrictions. Um, and I know the restrictions that came about because basically the uh, the goalposts were moved. But um, the point being, that's not going to happen again anytime no, soon. Yeah. It shouldn't happen again anytime, anytime soon, ever, um, unless there's a complete financial collapse in the football world. But then it will affect everyone. So, Josh, I don't know if you had anything to add on this, but if not, I will turn it over to you because the, the question of you know the Premier League bubble and contrast to the rest of Europe—it's one that you've asked me on this podcast a couple times. And now that we have someone who might actually be able to answer it, I thought you might like to bring it up. Well, I don't really know that the uh, you know looking long term, you know, like like you said, City are a self-sustaining engine. And, and I'm kind of of the mindset that, that Monsoor's involvement at this point is going to be expansion opportunities. And maybe if there is a uh, just a player simply too good to pass up, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, if if Messi becomes available even as self-sustaining as City seem to be, 
I would think what Barca would want for him would require Mansoor to get involved. Am I wrong on that? You may be wrong on that, actually. Because um, without going into too much detail, I'll tell you why. Um, Because a deal was mooted for Messi um, three years ago. And um, my understanding is as part of that deal, the sponsorships arrangements with Nike and Etihad would have been massively increased. And we would have had a number of other major sponsors ready to come on board. Uh, so uh, any Messi's a one-off. I mean, Messi, Ronaldo, maybe even Neymar's in that category now. These guys would effectively be self-financing. It, it, people don't believe you when you say that. but it, Is that uh, why they didn't move in on Pogba? Because for all the hype that people throw at him, he... And, and I'm saying this, it's going to get, oh my God, is this going to get vicious responses. But he's really no better than Raheem Sterling in the sense of he's a young player who has an enormous amount of talent. And I, he sure, he does have trophies with Juventus, but people keep acting like Pogba was the reason Juventus won those trophies, and that's not really the case. He was a big factor in that, but he takes just as many days off as Raheem Sterling. And developmentally, we saw in the Euros, this cat's not ready for it. Uh, he's got quite a bit to learn. Uh, but the price that he was going for was was finished product ready, you know, to, to, to take your club to, to three or four big trophies. Like, why, A, how did that happen with Pogba, and B, was that why City ultimately walked away from him? Because he wouldn't have come with those deals. Uh, yeah, I think that's part of it, because when you, when you think about Barcelona, you think of Messi, Neymar, Suarez. You don't think about Iniesta and Busquets. You know they're not they're not the glamour players, but they're the guys who make it tick. It, you know, it's the guys scoring the goals, the guys making the, the Ronaldo's making the runs. That you know the Messi's beating three players and sticking the ball in the back of the net. They're the ones that get the attention, really, aren't they? And um, I think a, a, another factor with Pogba was possibly the agent, because it seems like uh, he was looking for about twenty million to do that deal, and City have a thing about paying agents. Uh, and there's a couple of transfers have collapsed. So uh, Eden Hazard and um, Isco, I understand they both collapsed at a late stage because of um, demands for payment, which we weren't prepared to meet. So, so I think there's something of that in it, more than perhaps the commercial possibilities. I know they were also, um, you know, vaguely involved last summer as well on Pogba, and I believe were, were the image rights a factor as well. We've heard a million things about that. Well, that. I, I I don't know about that. It was United no. Singles yeah. sorted it out. But whether it was uh, something else, that was an excuse. Uh, that, that that's a story that was going around, but I really don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, the Pogba may turn out to be a very very good player, but he's never going to be a Ronaldo, that that or a Messi. And with no disrespect to him, but he's not going to get that sort of. The guy in the engine room doesn't get the same sort of. Glamour attached to him as the the guy up front knocking in the knocking in the goals. I also not quite convinced that he is going to end up 
where people think he is. I think he will be a fantastically good player, but I don't know if he's going to be a world beater. Well, it remains to be seen, doesn't it? I mean, um, he is a very good player. He certainly looked good when City played Juventus in the uh, Champions League group stage last season. Uh, there was one absolutely superb pass, but the thing is, can you do it week in, week out? Um, because uh, I, I'm not sure they've got a lot else in midfield. Carrick's getting on a bit. Schneiderlin seems to be on the uh, the fringes. Fellaini's not that... So, you know, Fellaini may be a good foil to Pogba, but he's never going to take his place uh, in any way, shape or form. So um, yeah, they, they, they need him to be performing week in, week out. The other thing that I wanted to get at was... As I said, something we've discussed on this podcast, and it is we we spoke about the new TV deal that kicks in this year and how it is so much more significant than anything that any other league has. So you're looking at well, we'll use the Leroy Sané deal as an example. You're looking at um, a situation where a Manchester City can and will pay up to, you know, 40, 45, 50 million pounds for for the services of that player from the German league. Um, and you know, there are other clubs as well that are, you know, we, we have the rich clubs, the Bayerns and the PSGs and the Barcelonas and the Real Madrid's that can afford transfers like that in other leagues. But, you know, now you're looking at Leicester, a bad example because Leicester's in, uh, the Champions League this year, but, um, clubs like Everton offering 30 million for players who aren't in the Champions League and clubs like, you know, I think it's something like going into today, I don't know how much it's changed, but 13 clubs breaking their transfer records this window alone in the Premier League. When Troy Deeney is going for 30 million, yeah, that that's sums it up. 20, 30 million, that's the example we're using. And I guess the question is, you know, what does it mean for the finances of Europe's elite leagues going on? You know, if Premier League clubs can afford to spend so much more money, you know, are there going to be other clubs in other leagues like, say, a Wolfsburg or maybe even another club like a Schalke who aren't involved in Europe but are in a position to demand a lot of money for a player? Is there going to be a Premier League tax? Is this going to be a situation where, you know, we're looking at uh, clubs in other leagues saying, well, you can afford this, so it's time to pay the piper? And is that going to have an effect on the transfer market as a whole and is there uh, is frankly is there a bubble that's going to inevitably burst here or are they going to find other ways to catch up that's a good question um um you know the um the, the gap has so grown so much greater I mean, i i wrote an article uh, last year for king of the kipax about um with, with the growth in domestic income uh, champions league income used to be a really significant part uh, of a club's revenue stream. So it used to set those, that, those top four clubs, United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, used to set them apart from the rest of the Premier League. Uh, and it was a kind of a self-perpetuating um, cycle, really. Now the domestic um, income has grown so so much greater that the key is on staying in the Premier League. And, and you see clubs like Newcastle, and he caught up with them eventually, but they were. I, my theory was they were always frightened to do too well because they didn't want to end up in the Europa League, uh, and and risk the season being, uh, uh, risk that being a distraction to their season and risking relegation. So, uh, not only I don't, it certainly affected the uh, the relative European scene, 
and you do wonder what other clubs are going to do because the Premier League's been hugely successful in marketing itself as a, a global brand, and it's the it's the go-to um, it's the go-to kind of football league across the world, and probably because it's so competitive. Um, and in actual fact, the the way the finance has gone has probably made it even more competitive because, they, as you say, even teams like Everton can afford to pay good money for players. So it's going to be, um, it's going, I think it's going to get even more competitive in many ways because um, because of the situation. It's more, the huge amount of income now comes from, in City's case, we've got Champions League income, we've got huge commercial income. For the clubs that don't have that, um, now the Premier League income is even more significant in their overall revenue stream. You know, it may be about, I don't know, 75, 80% of it. And I think the European clubs have already picked up on this, really. I think there already is some disquiet among the European Club Association about the growing gap between the Premier League and the um, the rest of Europe. Even the uh, even the, the kind of bigger leagues, La Liga, uh, the Bundesliga, um, Serie A, which has been actually financially not financially done that well. Um, and they're kind of there's almost kind of two worlds. There's the the Premier League and there's the the Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Atleticos. Then there's the Bayern Munichs, the PSGs, the Juventuses, and then there's the rest. And ultimately, I guess um, the, it will end up in a European Super League. That I, I, I can't see it going any other way. Yeah, and that's kind of the answer I worried about because I don't like the concept of that. But at the same time, this is about the money, isn't it? Um, that's ultimately, you know, it's what it comes down to. And it's why we've had clubs like, you know, we so then what had, do you, what do you do for yeah. the champions league? Like start inviting national teams or something? Like, I don't, I don't, just... well, I mean, this has been the story of, um, you know, I, I'd say I've written quite extensively on the kind of history of football finance and the threat of a breakaway has always been the catalyst for some shift in the financial playing field. So this kind of first started in the early, very early 1980s, 1981, when a handful of clubs threatened to break away from um, the Football League, unless they, because uh, originally, it, up to then, um, gate receipts were, were shared between the home club and the uh, visiting club, 75-25. So if you were going to um, the Manchester United or Liverpool, uh, you were Fulham going to Manchester United or Liverpool. You you got a good whack out of that, um, and then some of the bigger clubs threatened a breakaway in 1981 to kind of shift the playing field. They kept all the home receipts from then on, and and the threat was a breakaway, and that kind of started the financial shift towards the bigger clubs. Because after I think after that, only Leeds from 1981 onwards. I think only Leeds United. I, I think Aston Villa won it the last season, uh, won the kind of Division One, the last season of the old arrangement. And uh, following that, only Leeds United were, were were the only club who were not a moneyed club um, who then won the Division One, then the Premier League. Um, so, so kind of th this scene's been shifting all the time. It's always been the threat of a breakaway. The, the Premier League was formed after the threat of a breakaway. And, and in fact, it was a breakaway in, in many uh, senses of the word, wasn't it? Because it kind of set the Premier League uh, against the Football League. Um, so 
that that's been the history of of the way the kind of finance financial seismic shifts in football. So at some point the threat will come good because um, they, they've used the threat to get changes to the way the Champions League uh, is organised. So now um, we, 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 City wouldn't have to play that playoff game under the new arrangement because we get four spots automatically in the group stages. So that, again, the shift is much more towards you know the four big leagues and therefore the bigger teams in those leagues. And and you think at some point um, everyone's going to say kind of enough is enough and, and and one of two things one of two things is probably going to happen i don't know there's going to be another threat of a breakaway which has been avoided this time uh and they're either going to kind of um cave in in another way or the or, or the authorities of european club association premier league are just going to say well we'll call you bluff uh breakaway but there's so much money floating around you know uh, I'm sure you know Abu Dhabi would be quite happy to finance a, a European Super League or something. For for the moment, I think everything's okay. But uh, you know the disparity, um, and, and and it's something that's repeated actually. Even if you, even in the smaller leagues, you get a club in Romania who get, gets into the Champions League. The money that accrues from that completely distorts the domestic scene. So it's kind of um, all these kind of microclimates. Really, you, you've got the bigger picture. With the bigger European clubs, then even down in the lower, lower, less, less significant leagues, you've got um, a financial imbalance. If you're in the Champions League, um, if you look at Dundalk, uh, the Irish club Dundalk, uh, even getting in the Europa League will give them riches unheard of in the Irish league. So this is you know, this kind of ecosystem is being replicated, even down uh, at a very low level. So, uh, yeah. but, but football has always been that the history of football has always been, uh, and I look at American sports. You know, I'm a keen student of the finance, financial system, particularly in the NFL, where, where there is a disparity, but it's kept at a reasonable level. So there are certain things that are shared. Obviously, there are certain things that you keep for yourself. Uh, but football has always encouraged the uh, polarization of the big clubs and little clubs, and, and it's probably too late to do anything about it. Yeah, and when you mention the NFL, there's also a salary cap involved there, things yeah, like yeah. that. So you know, and and you use that example, and I you know I think of Celtic as well, and you're like, uh, who else is going to win the Scottish League in any at any point? Because you know, Celtic are not only a brand, but there's you know, they're going to get so much money from making the group stage that it's going to distort that entire league some more. Well, I think it's something like 15 million euros they'll get for making the group stage. Right. And they and have a, you know, if they don't win a game. Yeah. And they have a manager in, in, in Brendan Rodgers who is managing the Premier League. They, they, you know, they're not a Premier League quality team, but they, you know, they're, they're well, using the finances to masquerade. As, Roberts. Right. That, that loan move as well. Um, so, you know, it, it's. And and I, and we've seen in recent years clubs, you know, while they've gotten their concessions, you still hear the whispers of like the cities and the Uniteds and the Arsenals, the clubs who, you know, and the Chelsea's now who have missed the Champions League, despite being one of the elite teams in England or on, on measure, just saying, you know, well, they're floating the possibility of um, getting an automatic Champions League spot, which, you know, I hate. I think that everyone should. But it's money, isn't it? That's exactly what it is. Just sort of trying to protect themselves. Yeah, yeah. Because the more you, 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 you no know, clubs like United, Liverpool, even City are not going to give up what they've got to to make 
the financial distribution more egalitarian. It's a simple fact of life. What I'm curious about with City is, and I've mentioned this several times, just sort of like fleshing it out logically. You look at at the time where a lot of uh, where where City have set up have been fairly major areas in. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, when you bought the, the initial club is in Manchester, but then their next club was in New York. That's significant area, uh, especially when you're talking about sponsorships, promotions, and you're, you're not going to do better than that in state. No, States. no, especially when you're playing at Yankee Stadium. I know there's a lot of consternation about that, but there's also a this is you know one of the most hallowed grounds in all of America sporting history, even if it is a, a newer version of, of of an old great stadium, but. What I'm what I'm curious with City is as you look at that, you know, people talk about Barca and Man United love to say we're the biggest club in the world. No, you're really not. Uh, City are the biggest club in the world because in order to truly be a global football brand, you have to have businesses elsewhere. You can't just set up one shop and sell so many jerseys and have a TV network and then say, but we're global. No. You're domestic trying to act global. City have gone out there, installed these places, bought these franchises, and the only and largest market left untapped is going to be uh, or is South America. And I've always had this sneaking suspicion in the back of my head that City are going to use Manuel Pellegrini as an ambassador to kick off uh, uh, you know, whatever project they're going to to set up in South, South America because their scouting system is so vast that one of the things that enables them to do such a great job is by already having a team in that region. By de facto, you already have players who know about – you already have people who know about those players, so you can get that information to to the mothership that much faster and it seems weird to me because they've got japan they did the tv deal in china that's probably better than 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 anything with than buying a chinese club to be perfectly honest with you but in south america the ideal thing would to be a buy would be to buy a club the question is is that feasible is it could you see cities doing something like that and if so you know where do you go? Do you do you, do you do it in in Brazil with with you know that being one of the most noted leagues? Do you try and swoop up on like an Argentinian team? Like how how would City go about this? Because I just have a feeling a South American investment is coming. It's just a matter of when. Yeah, I think you have to look at the City are an inter- the, the whole CFG concept is a really interesting one because City have actually become almost um, geopolitical player, uh, or, or we've been part part of a big geopolitical game. So even um, even when Shinawatra, Shinawatra bought City, there was a political element to that. I'm sure with with Abu Dhabi, um, I suspect that the buying of, of a Premier League club was the start of a. Um, 
I guess, a start of a chain of events to project themselves around the world, this relatively small area, which is brilliantly placed globally because you've got kind of Africa one way, you've got Asia the other way, you've got Europe just to the north. And and I'm sure that a lot of the um, decision-taking around uh, what CFG are doing is about projecting the name of of this very wealthy, uh, relatively stable um, state around the world as a a place to do business. Um, Obviously, um, because obviously the Premier League is a huge thing, but the the, the MLS is not quite so big. Um, The A-League in Australia is... um, Kind of not many, I guess, not many people outside Australia watch it. The, the A League uh, might be slightly better than MLS, if we're being honest. Oh right, um, I, I've not seen enough of it to judge, to be honest. So, so I think you've got to look at it. You've got to look at the big picture in terms of this projection of the image of the uh, UAE or Abu Dhabi, particularly across the world. It's a, and it's a great way to do it because you know, it, football is one of the most soccer is one of the most popular sports. In the world, particularly in South America, I, I have had the, I have heard the name Uruguay mentioned, but I don't know how much, uh, how much credence you can attach to that one. But yeah, it, it's a great way. It, and and one of the things about CFG, of course, is that there's kind of economies of scale, so we can do these global marketing deals for for people as we're doing with people like Nissan, um, and you you automatically get brand recognition around the world. So so almost you can, because um, you see some of the names on shirts and you think, who the hell are they? Um, they're, they're very, a uh, lot of gambling companies, a lot of kind of regional companies. Everton had um, Chang, the Thai beer, um, Thai brewer um, on their shirts. But with City and the CFG, you've got this chance to project your name around the world. And, and, you know, people say, what would happen if Abu Dhabi walked away or Etihad didn't sponsor you? Well, you know, I always say, do you not think we'd get Nissan to put their, their names on all the shirts? Do you not, you not think that's a deal that they would um, um, jump at or, or any other kind of global uh, manufacturing or financial or, or airline or whatever? Um, it, it's a good it's a good thing thing to do. And if you've got the guarantee of that exposure, not just from the Premier League, but from Australia, from the USA, from South America, from uh, China, you, you know, you, you've got a huge market there. So um, I almost think it's not about football. It's not It's not about football. It's about the global opportunities for A, Abu Dhabi and B, you know, huge multinational companies oh, to yeah. project them around the world. And that's why I was asking that question in that way is because when you look at New York, you think of that as as an international trading destination. When you look at at at, at Sydney, you know, Melbourne, rather, uh, again, same thing. Um, and and uh, even to an extent, you know, Manchester is very, you know, very famous for their own trade. So they have these. <coughs> excuse me. Even, uh, even, even the uh, I'm I'm drawing a blank on on the the the, the Japanese team that that city are Yokohama. Yeah. Yokohama. I, I wanted to say that, but then I was like, no, I think I'm thinking of the tire company. <clears throat> um, excuse me again, but city have uh, 
these these locations to me never seemed random. And I know I wrote about this a while ago. And I just said they don't seem random. They're very strategically placed. They're yeah. they're meant to get the name out. And it seems to me that that's why South America is the next logical step. You know, the 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 the, the two biggest areas for talent in in when it comes to international football are Europe and South America. Or so you know having. I, I'm not saying that they would do this, but like say city went down there and they're like, we're going to buy river plate or, you know, Boca juniors or Corinthians or whatever the case may be. Like that would be in my mind, one of the shrewdest business moves of all time. Like now all of a sudden you have league winning clubs on every single worthwhile continent, which means your scouting networks are already out there and they're all talking to each other. And you could basically create this system where you can move players around to different places as they need with obviously the ultimate destination being coming to play for, for Manchester at the Etihad. Um, but also when does uh, you get, comment on that well yeah let, let, just go ahead and let you comment on that and then i got uh, uh, a couple other questions short sm smaller ones yeah um I, I did say it was kind of a geopolitical thing but yeah there's a football element to it as well and of course you can move um if we, if we kind of think about jason denea he's kind of now he's now playing for a premier league club on loan but you know, he's come he's kind of moved up the, the food chain if you like um, Angelino went out to New York, didn't he, for a little while? And, and it's a great opportunity to move players around. This Australian guy, uh, Aaron Moy, um, he was playing in Australia. Now um, he's actually playing for a championship club, Huddersfield, and getting getting rave reviews because um, they're top of the championship at the moment. I actually work with a Huddersfield supporter, so I kind of hear all these things firsthand. And um, so, yeah, it's a great opportunity to move, particularly move the younger kids, get them involved in a more competitive environment. And of course, it works the other way around that you see you get first kind of look at the local talent and potentially move them uh, around the world as well. Right on. That makes it that makes a, um, an extraordinary amount of sense. Um, Do you think uh, just real quick before I let yeah. you get your questions um, is like situations like the Moy thing are, you know, We've seen them buy a couple of Aussies before, and ultimately they get loaned to Melbourne City. We've obviously seen them sign Lampard and Villa for New York City, um, guys like that. Um, is this sort of a weird, you know, because it was technically City who bought um, Moy, and I know they've done that with at least one or two other Australian players. And, and there's an A-League rule preventing them. At Melbourne City. Yeah, you know, is this... Are they buying them be with Melbourne City in mind or are they looking, you know, with guys like Moy who are actually succeeding at the championship level? Is this, you know, gee, maybe he can force his way into our thoughts. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's a great uh, kind of some talk today are City following the Chelsea model of getting loads of kind of younger players in and then uh, loaning them out to see how they develop. Uh, and also there's, there's kind of a financial element to it, because if these guys don't work out, if you bought them cheaply or you you brought them in as kids, if they don't work out, if you can sell them for five million pounds or whatever, ten million, um, that's kind of 
you know, straight on the bottom line. And certainly City used to work that way um, a few years ago where they, they'd churn out loads of kids from the academy and, and they might not make it uh, in the first team. Sean Wright Phillips was Stephen Ireland uh, were, were two of the ones that did. Um, but, it, you know, if you could sell them for two or three million pounds, it kind of paid for the academy itself. Now, we're not in that situation anymore, of course. Uh, very profitable club. But, yeah, it's... Um, uh, yeah, there's a number of strands to it. So, yeah, you can... You can move players kind of up the food chain, if you like, and the, the Aaron Moy thing is, is a good example of that. The Championship is a very tough league, uh, and if he does well in that, that there's every chance he'll he'll get a chance in the uh, in the City team. And of course, just to go back to one thing we were talking about earlier about um, how much we could spend in the future, because one of the um, one of the stated aims is to have half the team coming up as homegrown players through the academy. So, um, but by kind of bringing all these guys, the, the bigger ta- um, pool of talent you've got, the more chance you have of finding that one or two, finding your Messi or your Iniesta uh, among that pool of talent. Um, so, so by kind of uh, you know, moving them around very carefully and making sure they're playing at a club which is maybe slightly, you think maybe slightly above their level, see how they whether they sink or swim, is a great way to actually keep that talent almost locked in it's the Jason Denea thing isn't it that you, you, you sort of keep that talent locked in but you still have the uh, ability to uh, you either sell them and make a bit of a profit or you bring them in um, into the inner circle when, when you think they're ready now about the Etihad thing I'm, I'm curious when is the earliest that City can do something about that, and what do you expect them to do? I, um, I'm talking off the top of my head. I think it was a 10-year deal originally, but I think it got renegotiated. Um, so it, it will be interesting to see what they do do, whether they kind of, um, because as well as Etihad, there's a number of other Abu Dhabi kind of second-tier sponsors. Uh, it'd be interesting to see what they do, because, but on one level, having your airline's name on the front of a shirt is a great way of increasing brand recognition. Um, I, I read a report that uh, Qatar Airways um, sponsored the weather report on Sky TV, and that increased brand recognition by about 70%. So it, it it's obviously Emirates are big into sponsorship. Qatar are big into sponsorship. Well, they're on the front of uh, Barcelona shirts. So in one sense, it's a great way uh, of kind of keeping that brand awareness. And Etihad as an airline has done really well financially um, over the last few years. And it'd be interesting to um, understand how much of that was down to the fact that their name is splashed all over the TV whenever watch people watch um, football. And it's not just watching the game. It's the Et- People talk about the Etihad Stadium and places like that. You know, the name's getting out there. Uh, and I say, I think we did that deal quite cheaply. So um, I, say, I think that was a 10-year deal. Uh, so we've got a few years to go on that yet, I think. Um, but the potential is there. I, I say it's cheap at the moment. It looks cheap compared to other deals. So the potential is there to do a bigger deal. But whether kind of it, whether it is a way of fuddling Sheikh Mansour's money into City is another question whether he might want to kind of step back from that a little 
and perhaps make us a little bit uh, less dependent on uh, money from Abu Dhabi? It, it's difficult to say. I, I, I would say at a guess that Etihad will keep a close relationship with the club because it's uh, a huge uh, global advertising opportunity. And if you're looking to be present yourself as a global business hub, you want your airline's name out there and you want it out there big time. No, that makes total sense. Uh, before we let you go, I thought we'd get your your thoughts on some easier stuff that doesn't require an enormous amount of guesswork or uh, or uh, speculation on financial matters, but perhaps a bit more fun. Um, I want to ask you about where we're you know with the, with the trade deadline now done. How overall? do you feel about what city brought in and and judging by the 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 players and and what they can add to the team and what you've seen from Guardiola already in terms of tactics um you know are are you is there anyone that you're excited to see because there's a couple yet left to debut three I, I would be curious not only from a football standpoint from also from a business standpoint yeah. how they've done yeah, I think the two we haven't seen yet are obviously Leroy, uh, Leroy Sané and uh, Ilkay Gundogan. And I think they're, they're two players everyone's quite excited to see because the, um, they come with rave reviews. And obviously, um, the other one is um, the, the young Brazilian kid, Gabriel Jesus, uh, who joins us in January. Never um, mind then, there are four, because I was thinking of Claudio Bravo. And Claudio Bravo, yeah, uh, that that <laughs> that would be an interesting one because, of course, as we talked about Joe Hart before, there's a lot of sentiment around Joe Hart, so people are going to be looking at Bravo with a completely different eye to the way they're looking at uh, Leroy Sané, for example. But it, it's not just for me. Uh, I was thinking about this before. It's not just the, the new players, but there are some old players who are like new signings. So you're looking at uh, Raheem Sterling, particularly. Um, Kolarov, even Kolarov. But um, I, I was listening to another podcast uh, in the car this morning. It was the, uh, the English newspaper, The Guardian's weekly football podcast. And they were talking about Raheem Sterling. And uh, quite a surprising thing. Um, they, they were saying that um, these guys are all journalists, so they're talking to people. They said that the word from his camp was he was quite disappointed um, about his move to City last season. Because he thought he was, Brendan Rodgers had invested a lot of time and energy in him. Uh, he went to City thinking he would get better, and Pellegrini virtually paid him no attention at all. Um, yeah, I read that, or I, 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 yeah. I was listening to that this morning too. What, a, what, a, what an odd coincidence. Yeah. So <laughs> we've, um, oh, Pellegrini, the thought was Pellegrini had just said to the guy, well, and, and it looked like it last season. He just said, "Go out and make it up as you go along." Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that that's one of the great things because um, not only Silver, I mean Silver had injury problems last season, but he's now slipping into the role. Uh, Kevin De Bruyne is going back to the way um, that he was uh, at the height of his powers before he got injured. So it's not just seeing, excited to see the new players, um, but it's also exciting to see the existing players who are rising to the challenge because it, it's a it's a huge step up. You know, I was saying to someone at, at, at the game, we're kind of, you've got your Real Madrid, Barcelona, uh, Bayern Munich at the top of the tree. They're the three. Then below them, you've got Atletico Madrid, Juve, 
Uh, and we're somewhere just hovering below that. Uh, and we're now going to make that leap into that group of four, hopefully. You know, so it's Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Manchester City. Uh, and, and part of that's the players. But I think the other interesting thing is um, when we watched kind of Pellegrini team last season, uh, as someone said to me, uh, Pellegrini had a plan A. And if that didn't work, he just tried plan A again. Um, th there was no no sense of preparation last season. I, I don't know how it comes over when you're watching it kind of uh, at, at arm's length. but Exactly the same. Yeah, there was no the, go and take a corner and it was a kind of a hit, hit and hope into the middle and hope someone might get their head on it. There was no thought about how to mix it I up. I actually it. predicted. I said, because... <clears throat> I, I was watching Pellegrini's reign and right about the midweek of uh, or about the middle that Christmas break of, of his second uh, year, I was like, this is only going to go downhill. Like coming out of coming out of Christmas, this thing's only going to go downhill. And it did. And then they managed to salvage it. But then obviously we know the following year it was just basically a much worse version of, of the previous year. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I have been saying banging the drum for as loud and loud as anyone will listen. Um, and this comes from, again, just being a guy who covers American football. Uh, you you can tell when a coach is is a guy who develops talent. It's 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 evident beyond evident when a coach actually works individually with players to help them develop their skills. Um, and Pellegrini was no such man. And he he did Raheem Sterling and Kevin De Bruyne a huge disservice because he brought them in and didn't teach him a damn thing. And that's honestly. That's why I wanted Mangala to stay, is because I felt that Pellegrini screwed the pooch on that one. If Guardiola had gotten Mangala, uh, I, I, I think that Mangala could and would be a first world-class uh, uh, center back. But I, I, Yeah, I, I, I'd argue with that, because Mangala, to me, doesn't like, look like... Uh, why Colorado's there and Mangala isn't? Because Colorado's quite comfortable with the ball at his feet. Mangala never really looked uh, comfortable with the ball. At his I'm feet. not saying Mangala Mangala would have been a world class necessarily at Manchester City. I'm saying that if 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 he had been developed by Pep Guardiola, uh, Mang Mangala had at an earlier age, and and rather than trying to teach an old dog new tricks then I believe the outcome for him might have been slightly different. But he sat there undeveloped for three years. I, I, I think uh, one of my arguments about um, last season when people were talking about players who were no good and would have to go was, I'm not going to judge any player until I've seen them under Guardiola because they're not getting any direction. They will get now, they, but they will get some direction to Guardiola. And... Uh, it's kind of set, as I say, setting aside the, indiv the, the change in individual players, it's looking at the team as a whole uh, and the shape and the way they're playing and the purpose and the energy and the intensity. Uh, and all those things are just such a complete contrast to the, well, good, well, guys, you know, next 90 minutes, just go out and make it up as you go along and we'll see how it ends up type attitude we seem to have since, as you say, since uh, January 2015.
So yeah, it, it's and, and we're only at the early stages. I, I always say new manager, new players. As I say, it takes. I've always said it takes about eight games before you see a, a shape start emerging in a team. But the great thing is, it's with three get well, well, five games in, but three Premier League games in, and we're already seeing a huge, huge difference. And I think a lot of us have said, you know, kind of talk to fans, it'll take a season. I don't ex- expect us to be up there, but I don't expect us to be kind of running away with the league this season. But you, you now start to think, can we? Um, can we do it? Because the difference in just three games um, is, is so great that you, you wonder what 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 would be like in 10, 12 games. No, I... So, so that's 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 the exciting thing is just seeing the, the difference in the team, but seeing uh, and also say yeah, we've got the new players to come in Sane, Gundogan, uh, Jesus in in uh, January. It's just so exciting. Yeah, definitely. And 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 the final two questions I want to ask you really really simple. First off, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Aguero and the potential ban. Ah, right. Uh, <laughs> Um, he, the latest is that he's been given an extra day to prepare his defense. Um, okay, so I guess this is a two-part question. What, what, what defense could he possibly prepare that could help him? And what's the ult- at the end of the day, what's the likeliest outcome here? Uh, in terms of the defense, um, it's a difficult one because. The, the panel will only look at the incident. So you can't go to them and say, well, so-and-so did this two weeks ago and he did nothing. And uh, this one only got a yellow card. Uh, one incident that gets uh, brought up is the Fellaini elbow on um, Pablo Zabaleta a couple of seasons ago in the derby at Old Trafford. And there was no doubt about that. And um, Fellaini had the ball at his feet. Zabaleta came in to tackle him. Fellaini looked at him. He was watching him all the time stuck his elbow in his face, the referee was right in front of it and gave him a yellow card, which means you can take no further action. So I, I'm not sure what defence, the only possible defence is around the action itself. And it might be it was an accidental movement or something like that. Um, I suspect even a defence, because if you watch the incident, I, obviously it was at the game, it was kind of slightly down the other end from where I sit. And all I saw was uh, Reed go down in a heap after the ball had been near him. The referee didn't seem to think it was any problem. So we just assumed it, it wasn't. And then afterwards, we found out that obviously it was a potential elbow. So the, the only defence is pro- probably, but if you look at it at this angle, it was accidental. But I, I don't think there is a defence because if they've charged in, they made up the mind. And, the con- and there's a few, few kind of American guys have... Um, said, oh, they might let him on, might be lenient, they might think about the derby. Well, they won't. Uh, If he's accused of violent conduct and found guilty, he will get a three-game ban. There is no... um, Basically, it's the issuing of a red card retrospectively. But the system is crazy because um, it's so dependent on what the media decide. So if if there was any consistency, because what has to happen is just to do it to go over it briefly uh, the referee submits a report after the match and he'll say i gave a yellow card for this i gave a red card for that or whatever or there were major incidents or there was an elbow and i didn't think it was deliberate or something like that uh, and it's so open to abuse because the referee can simply say well i didn't see it or i, I saw something but i didn't understand um what had happened i didn't see exactly what happened 
and then they can take retrospective action. But, but why Aguero was cautless, because the game was on TV and the media all led with it. So it was on a loop on the TV or the back pages of the papers online. And the FA almost have to do something. Whereas in the um, Spurs-Liverpool game on the Saturday, um, the Spurs player Eric Lamella was caught trying to eye-gouge Dejan Lovren of Liverpool. But no one has made a fuss about this and he's got away with it. Uh, And and the procedure is so um, random. Uh, I think that's people... People aren't trying to excuse Aguero because if he did try to elbow someone, even if it was a fairly inept attempt, he's only got himself to blame. But what, what is unfair is that the system has no consistency whatsoever. So he gets basically cited because the press say he ought to be, whereas they'll ignore two or three other incidents that may have occurred the same weekend. And because he gets cited, they issue a charge and um, he will get a ban. So where's where's the fairness in that system? I, I just don't see it. But I'm not going to excuse someone sticking an elbow or attempting to stick an elbow in someone's face. But everything... It's kind of the argument they had on the first weekend of the season when they were giving out penalties. Mike Dean was giving out penalties. Mark Hughes made the point, I'm okay with it as long as it's consistently applied. An interesting thing, there was, I I, I kind of keep it short, but there was an incident with, if you remember, with Emmanuel Adebayor back in 2009 when he played for City against Arsenal. Um, And he scored a goal, went to celebrate down the other end in front of the Arsenal fans. And he got uh, cautioned for um, a provocative celebration of a goal. And um, an incident which, by the way, led to one of the greatest gifs in the history of the Internet. Oh, fantastic. It was a great moment. Um, Just loved it. And just see the Arsenal fan. There's a a gif going around of the Arsenal fans kind of surging down the the kind of... uh, the stand to try and get it's exactly, you, exactly you the that, one I speak. You of. see something new every time. <laughs> yeah. Um, now he was given a yellow card for that. It was interesting because um, Mark Hughes was told it was for uh, provocative celebration, uh, uh, whatever the the technical term is on sporting behaviour or, or whatever. Uh, and I, I, ha- I happened to be at the club at uh, we used to have, had a fans committee called Points of Blue. Uh, and we used to meet with club officials about four times a year to discuss various match day uh, and other kind of administrative type things with them. And we just happened to be at the club two days later on the Tuesday night. And uh, Vicky Kloss, who was the communications director, was talking about this. And uh, so, so Clattenburg submitted his report and he, he changed the reasoning for this yellow card. So he cautioned him for he said he cautioned him for time wasting. Now, I can guarantee you in the history of football, no one has ever got back in their own half faster than Emmanuel Adebayor did that day. I I think I timed it the other day. It was about six seconds to get back into his own half. So how he could be accused of time wasting, I'm not not sure. But because uh, the caution was for time waste or alleged to be for time wasting, that allowed the FA to bring a charge of um, provocative celebration which you got a suspended ban for. So yeah, the whole process is um, is absolutely rotten, really. Um, so, as I say, I'm not going to excuse... Uh, Aguero's going to get a three-game ban, almost certainly. I can't see he's got a defence. But you know, it would be nice if everyone, every game was reviewed in the same way um, to, to get the 
so everyone suffered from a consistent uh, punishment set of punishments. Ain't that the truth? Um, I, well, I, I, I will say, sorry, just before I finish, I will say one of the things I have said is that obviously he'll miss he'll miss the United game, uh, he'll miss the Swansea Cup game, Swansea League Cup game, and the Bournemouth home game. So for those latter two, he's probably not that important. But Aguero, he's he's the one player under Guardiola who I think really hasn't quite got it as yet. And he wasn't, although he gets his goals and he will always score goals, he's really, I, I just feel he's really not at the peak he was um, two or three seasons ago. So I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if it's maybe not That's such a bad interesting. thing. That's interesting. You're the first person I've heard say that. Do, do you want to follow up on that, Gray? I mean, I don't. You know, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but, you know, it's an interesting. Do you think that it's because, you know, injuries or it's because he hasn't gotten the system yet? I'm not disagreeing with you, by the way. I'm just saying I, I you're the first person I've heard say that. Yeah, so it's perhaps a bit of a controversial view. But when you think of the attacking talent we've got, we've got Kevin De Bruyne, we've got David Silva, we've got Sterling, we've got Nalito who'll slip onto that forward spot. Uh, Sané may well be ready. Um We've got Iannaccio, who probably probably wouldn't start, but may, may bring him on if we need him after 60 minutes or something. We've even got uh, Navas, who you know can cause problems, not least to his own club, not not least to his own team. If he ever gets his crossing right, he'd be a brilliant player. But we've got enough Italian. Uh, we've got Fernandinho, Gundogan may be ready. We've got enough in, enough talent to cause them problems. And of course, Pep likes this false. He has played with centre forwards, but he does like this false number nine thing. So, uh, you know, I may be kind of talking myself into this, but I'm not necessarily um, convinced it's the worst thing that could have happened. Yeah. I'd prefer it wouldn't have done, but yeah. Fair, fair enough, fair enough. So, uh, my final question would be on the back of that: What do you think then happens in the derby? You, you, you've set it up. Now knock it down. <laughs> it, it's an interesting one, I say, because from watching Aguero, he hasn't quite. I don't think he's quite got the system, uh, because Pep's system is all about everyone knowing where they should be and knowing what everyone else is going to do. If you can sum it up in one sentence, it's it's about anticipating what what your teammates are going to do and your teammates knowing anticipating what you're going to do. And, and I'm not I'm not quite sure Aguero's really kind of got that. He likes to play on the shoulder of, of the last defender, but the, the ball's not kind. Of, he's not making the runs. The ball's not getting through to him. In terms of the derby, I don't know. I suspect we put Nolito um, uh, kind of as the main striker because it gives the Aguero's had a great record against United, of course. But perhaps it gives um, gives Jose Mourinho a problem he hadn't anticipated. So 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 maybe we don't go with a. Uh, a, a kind of a forward playing on the, the shoulder of the last defender. Maybe we go with something entirely different, where whereby we've got any one of five forwards who could be making a run. So maybe we play play kind of silver and De Bruyne further up the field, and, and give them kind of license to uh, move into the space, move into the gaps. Um, I, 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 I don't know. M um, I mean, Navas attack, attack, attracts a lot of criticism, but he does a job of sorts. You know, he's always a good outlet for the ball. He's good defensively. And, you know, with United's um, fullbacks, Luke Shaw, Valencia, 
uh, you might need someone like Navas to track their runs because that that I think is where the danger comes from from them. So it, it, it it's an interesting. I never like to call um, I never like to call derby matches. It's always too. I, I would happily um, forego derby matches. Um, although of course it's great when you win. It's terrible when you lose. But um, how it will go, it, it, it's uh, I don't know. I, obviously, I like to think we're going to win. 2-1, 3-1, but who knows? All right. Well, that's fair. That's totally yeah. fair. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. before we uh, call a wrap on this, if you would like to tell us, I know you write, you're on all sorts of places. Tell us where to find you on these, this here internet. Yeah, I uh, do most of my stuff for King of the Kipax fanzine. And, uh, you know, if there's anyone around who uh, the kind of tagline of King of the Kipax, if you've ever seen it, is written by the fans for the fans. So there's people like me, Howard Hawkin, who I know you've had on. Uh, another really good writers who, um, if you want to understand what's going on in the mind of a city fan, King of the Kipax is a great read and it's available on Kindle as well. Um, it, it, it's There's not many fanzines left these days. So it, it's mainly in print, um, but it is available on Kindle. So you know, if you really want to get into the mind of a city fan, see what the issues affecting them, uh, the club are, uh, you know what, what the thoughts of the, the match-going fan are. King of the Kipax is a great place to kind of understand, to get under the skin of a city fan. Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, at Press Twitch Blue. That's P R E S T W I C H B L U E, um, and that's it, really. Well, that's very good. Then that's more than enough. Um, so. Um... Thank you again, Colin, so much for joining us today. It's fantastic insight into a lot of things that we are, are a bit foreign to us over here. So we yeah. really, really appreciate it. You, you really clarified some things for me. It helps. It's always fun to get a better understanding, especially because I'm sure you've heard my story as to how I became a City fan. Uh, I, I've not, actually. Oh, well... I'll keep it brief because great. The Cliffs, the Cliffs Notes version. Yeah, the Cliffs yeah. Notes is, is I, I'm post-takeover, but what I ended up doing is I had researched every single Premier League club for a year and a half watching before I picked my team. And I was researching them on the spare time after watching them, whittling down style of play, <clears throat> players that I could get behind and how far – uh, they might go in some competitions, etc. Uh, and and I, the reason that I chose City was because of everything going on with CFG, and and uh, they're an exciting team to watch. Uh, they they are a storied team, but at the same time, there's still so much to experience with the fans, all for the first time, um, and. Uh, they're just they're they're one of the best run sports teams I've seen in my entire life. I've I've never seen anything <laughs> like what they do there. But it's a good job you weren't following us in the in the kind of late seventies and eighties and nineties then, because they were probably the worst run we've heard uh, <laughs> that has ever been. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean it, it it is great now. They are a well run club. But the great thing about City is is the history. And, of course, the fans, a lot of the fans, that's why it's like the fans writing in King of the Kipax are people who've been around a while. 
and um, they've seen every you know we've seen everything from uh, kind of you know triumph now to disaster and uh, uh, have we got time for one little last story yes. go for it yeah yeah go for it, I, we'll uh, when it. city played uh, kind of we're at the lowest point was in obviously in uh, 1998 when they were in what's now uh, league 1 and i think everyone thought they they'd walked league 1 and we didn't so we, we kind of scraped into the playoffs and I was actually in New York uh, when that Gillingham game was taking place. And we're around at a friend's house for brunch and her parents were there uh, and the rest of her family. And so we're kind of keeping a close eye on the watch because it's five hours, obviously five hours behind. And, and at a convenient point, towards the end of the game, we said, oh, do you mind if we just log on to the Internet? There's a big game going on in, in England that we, we kind of our team's playing in. So my son and I. Yeah, we logged onto the internet and it took a while to find kind of a way of following the game. I think we've, we caught up the BBC tech service. And, and as we switched it on, City were 2-0 down and we thought, oh no, how can they have blown this? And then, of course, almost straight away they got the the, 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 um, the first goal and then with kind of seconds to go, Dickoff equal, Paul Dickoff equalised, got that wonderful equaliser. And, and that was probably a game more than any which, which defines City uh, and set the future. But we're going absolutely crazy. And then, of course, we went through extra time and penalties and we won and we're going crazy again. And uh, a friend, Alan's father, said to us, um, and excuse the American accent, I can only do this in an American accent, pseudo-American accent. Hey, have you guys just won the Super Bowl or something? So we kind of <laughs> patiently explained to him that um, about the league's promotion, crazy, we were celebrating kind of third place in the third division, effectively, um, and, and kind of how things have changed. Um, I, I kind of worry about new fans because um, they'll never know the kind of depths of disappointment that we had to go through as a City fan. It's, uh, it was character building. So um, I, I'm a Red Sox fan, a Boston Red Sox fan. <laughs> I, yeah, I know enough about baseball. Well today. aware of the depths of depression that City fan. <laughs> My baseball team lost 119 games in a 162 game season once. <clears throat> Different sport, but you know. I, we're, we, I think we're conscious of the fact that it, we're never going to actually be able to uh, fully understand what it means. But, um, but yeah, it's. I, I know you mentioned Gary James's um, yeah. book. I mean, that's a great read. Even if you start reading from the kind of seventies onwards, you'll get you'll get a feel for what City fans have been through. Um, you know, in the last forty years or so. It's uh, quite been quite a journey, right? Yeah, and we have mentioned that. So, um, but uh, yeah, that seems like a great. All point. good journeys inevitably usually have awesome endings. So let's that's right. This one. <laughs> well, um, Colin, again, thanks for the stories and the insight and everything, and we will um, we'll keep in touch with you. I'm sure, and um, we really appreciate it. Well, definitely. Great. It's been great to speak to you, and yeah. um, I say my uh, just my best wishes to all um, all American City fans. Um, I am actually coming over in October, down in uh, New York and Pennsylvania. But, Excellent. Um, and you said you have a son in Pennsylvania, so you have a vested yeah, interest. Yeah, yeah. So in I might I might get to watch the. If there's anyone like, in Pittsburgh listening? I might like get us. to watch the Barcelona game in Pittsburgh. Oh, there you go. Um, uh, as for us, we are on iTunes. You, you can subscribe to us. We are on blog talk radio. That is our sponsor. 
Um, we don't know when we'll be back. We'll be back at some point before the international break ends. But um, until then, I'm Gray. That's Josh. And this has been American Citizens. Thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.